welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, as she called us to live to a higher standard each day. And we shouldn't be satisfied with just a little religion. What a shallow substitute for what God wants. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today, we consider one of the best-known phrases that Elizabeth used to say, do the next thing. And we'll look at the pain of divorce, the ultimate humiliation. Our guest today is Jim Howard, youngest of the Howard siblings. He'll talk about the home he and Elizabeth grew up in. Also, Elizabeth takes some time to talk about why she went by the name Elliot rather than Howard or Leach or Gren. Stay tuned for that. Right now, though, do the next thing. If you have 20 things on your to-do list and you feel overwhelmed, maybe that's part of the answer. Do the next thing. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about do the next thing. When I went back to my jungle station after the death of my first husband, Jim Elliot, I was faced with many confusions and uncertainties. I had a good many new roles besides that of being a single parent and a widow. I was alone on a jungle station that Jim and I had manned together, I had to learn to do all kinds of things which I was not trained or prepared in any way to do. And it was a great help to me simply to do the next thing. Have you had the experience of feeling as if you've got far too many burdens to bear, far too many people to take care of, far too many things on your list to do? You just can't possibly do it, and you get in a panic, and you just want to sit down and collapse in a pile and feel sorry for yourself. Well, I've felt that way a good many times in my life, and I go back over and over again to an old Saxon legend which I'm told is carved in an old English parsonage somewhere by the sea. I don't know where this is, but this is a poem which was written about that legend. The legend is, Do the Next Thing, and it's spelled in what I suppose is Saxon spelling, D-O-E for do, the, and then next, N-E-X-T-E, thing, T-H-Y-N-G-E. The poem says, do it immediately, do it with prayer, do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all resultings, do the next thing. That is a wonderfully saving truth. Just do the next thing. So I went back to my station, took my 10-month-old baby, tried to take each duty quietly as the will of God for the moment. One of the very first duties that faced me was what in the world I was going to do about the church. We had 50 newly baptized believers, Christians, who a year before had not been Christians. Jim Elliott had been teaching them daily and preaching on Sundays. Jim Elliott was not there anymore. There was no other male missionary. Now, I happen to be a very firm believer 
in men's taking the leadership in church. I believe that God has clearly defined the positions of authority in both the home and the church as belonging to men. So whether you agree with me on that or not, let me just say that I get my ideas from the scriptures, and that's where I had to start when I got back to my little jungle station. I was not going to run that church, but I was literally the only person around who had the scriptures. There was nobody else that could teach those believers. So what was I to do? One of the last things that Jim had said to me when I said to him before he left, what will I do if you don't come back, was you must teach the believers. And so I took two of the young men that Jim had picked out as potential leaders in the church. I explained to them that it was not my job to be the head of the church. It was their job to take responsibility. And I said, I'm here to help you. So on Saturday afternoon, each week after that time, I would call one or the other of these men to my house. We would sit down together, translate a few simple verses from Spanish and Greek and English and whatever else I could draw on into Quechua. And then these men would get up and preach the sermon, which I had helped them make an outline for. I would draw out of them their own understanding of the scriptures and try to get them to give me some illustrations from their jungle experience. And they would get up and preach not a very good sermon. I could have done a better job. But I felt that it was not my job to take over the church simply because I was competent to do it. It was my job to encourage these men so that they would become competent. Then there was the question of a diesel motor. What did I know about diesel generators? We had one for electricity, which we used sometimes in the evenings for a couple of hours. And so I had to figure out how to run the diesel motor. I had to figure out how to keep the airstrip clean. I had to pay about 40 Indians swinging machetes to do that, which made me their foreman. I'd never been anybody's foreman before. I was teaching a women's literacy class. We had a boys' school taught by an Ecuadorian teacher that I had to um, sort of supervise and encourage and pay and do various things that I was not used to doing. I had the medical work. I had the translation of the book of Luke, which Jim and I had finished only in rough draft when he was killed. And I was going to carry on with that because, as I said, there were no scriptures in Quechua, and if the church was to grow, they had to have spiritual food. So I went ahead with the translation of Luke. The grass in the jungle grows unbelievably fast, so I was always having to hire people to cut the grass, to clean out the pineapple bed, to cut the branches away from the trail between my house and the airstrip, and I tried to decide what to do about a hydroelectric system that Jim had just begun to put in, didn't know whether I should try to finish that or forget it. You can imagine how tempted I was to just plunk myself down and say, there is no way I can do this. I wanted to sink into despair and helplessness. Then I remembered that old Saxon legend, do the next thing. And I remembered a verse that God had given to me before I went to Ecuador in Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. 
What is the next thing for you to do? Small duties, perhaps? Jobs that nobody will notice as long as you do them? A dirty job that you would get out of if you could have your own preferences? Are you asked to take some great responsibility that you really don't feel qualified to do? You don't have to do the whole thing right this minute, do you? I can tell you one thing that you do have to do right this minute. It's the one thing that is required of all of us every minute of every day. Trust in the living God. Now, what is the next thing? Well, perhaps it's to get yourself organized. Maybe you need to clean off your desk if you have a desk job that needs to be done. Maybe you need to clean out your kitchen drawers if you're going to do your kitchen work more efficiently. Maybe you need to organize the children's clothes. I know what an enormous job that is for Valerie, my daughter. She's got five very fast-growing little children, and it's just amazing how those clothes stack up. All of a sudden, the children are coming out saying, I can't wear this, this is too short, or this is too long, or this doesn't fit me anymore. What do you do with those things? If you're going to save them for the next child, you've got to put them somewhere where you can find them. So you just do that one thing. And somehow or other, the peace of God descends upon us when we take things calmly, peacefully, and humbly as the next thing that God has assigned us to do. About three years ago, I think it was, my daughter and her husband were going away for a weekend and taking with them the nursing baby. No, it couldn't have been three years old. Three years ago, that baby's only two years old, so it was just a little under two years ago. The baby was just a few weeks or months old, and Val and Walt decided to go off for a weekend, and they asked me if I could stay with the other four children. I was delighted. I live on the other side of the continent from my children, my grandchildren, and I was delighted for the opportunity. So I stayed with them, and in the first day, I don't remember ever being so busy in my life. I mean, it was Granny this and Granny that, and Granny, will you read us a story, and Granny, can we have some more juice, and Granny, would you pull my pants up, Granny, would you pull my pants down, Granny, can we have some juice, Granny, can we go outside, Granny, what time is supper, until I really thought I would go mad. Well, my dear sweet daughter had the good sense to call me that evening, and she said, well, Mama, how are you doing? And I said, wonderfully, Val. And then I said, but I'm not sure I can make it through the next three days. And then I assured her that her children were wonderful children. They're not disobedient. They're not unruly. Everything was going along really very well when you think of the way some households are run. But I said, I keep thinking, Valerie's got a baby to nurse. That takes about six hours a day. How does she do it? So tell me, Val, how do you do it? And she laughed, and she said, Well, Mama, I'll tell you how. I do what you told me years ago to do. Do the next thing. Don't sit down and think of all the things you have to do. That will kill you. It's overwhelming. It's daunting. If you think of all the things that are involved in a task, just pick up the next thing. And I find this even in the scriptures. Tucked in the back of the book of Mark, following the story of the crucifixion, we read this lovely little story. Mark 
15, verse 42. By this time evening had come, and as it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, a man who looked forward to the kingdom of God, bravely went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, so he sent for the centurion and asked him whether it was long since he died. And when he heard the centurion's report, he gave Joseph leave to take the dead body. So Joseph bought a linen sheet, took him down from the cross, wrapped him in the sheet, and laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance. He did the next thing. Now that's called do the next thing. Later, Elizabeth will take a little time and talk about why she went by the name Elliot rather than Howard, Leach, or Gren. Uh, that coming up later. Right now, though, let's hear from Jim Howard. In a little bit, we'll be thinking about the pain of divorce. Uh, what was the Howard family like? What was the home like that they grew up in? Jim Howard, Elizabeth's youngest brother, talks about that. Our home was a happy home. I am the youngest of six siblings. All five of them have died now, so I'm the sole living sibling in the family. Uh, we grew up knowing loving parents who set godly examples for us in the home of what it means to live a Christian life and walk with the Lord. So all of us carried those memories and examples with us as we grew up. Our home was a very orderly home. My father was a very self-disciplined person, orderly, did things predictably. So my home was in Morristown, New Jersey, where I grew up. And uh, so I have great memories of that. The youngest brother of Elizabeth, Jim Howard. Our program next is about divorce, the ultimate humiliation. And later on, Elizabeth will answer a question you might have, uh, might have asked. Why did she go by the name Elliot rather than Howard, Leach, or Gren? Why was she best known as Elizabeth Elliot? Thoughts on that from Elizabeth herself coming later. Right now, divorce, the ultimate humiliation. Gateway to Joy, number 28. In Let Me Be a Woman, Elizabeth said, Marriage is a vocation. You are called to it. Accept marriage, then, as a God-given task. Throw yourself into it with joy. Do it heartily with faith, prayer, and thanksgiving. The subject of my talks these weeks has been loneliness. And there are a good many forms of loneliness which I have never experienced. And I don't pretend to know all that goes into that kind of loneliness. But it's a subject which I certainly cannot avoid. When my husband Jim Elliott was killed, I had a letter from a former classmate of his, a young woman who was a missionary in Mexico. And she told me how one day she and her husband were living in a rather remote area, I think an Indian village somewhere in the mountains of Mexico. And her husband went to the store, the little village market or something, to get some groceries. She was in the kitchen when he returned. He walked in with a bag, set it on the kitchen table, 
and said, Mary, I'm leaving. And she said, where are you going? He said, I'm leaving. She was silent. She was stunned to silence. He said, I mean, I'm not coming back. Well, she wrote to me to say, don't ever forget that there are far worse ways of losing your husband than through death. I'm sure that's true. There's no bitterness in death. There's no resentment against anyone in death. At least there certainly wasn't in my case. I wasn't resentful or bitter even at God because I never doubted that God loved me. But the bitterness, the resentment, the hurt, the humiliation of divorce is a loneliness that I know nothing about. And I cannot say I know what you're going through if you're one of those people that has suffered the ultimate humiliation. But I can say this, that I know the one who knows, and I know the one who has walked with me through my darkest valleys, and I commend to you that same one, the shepherd who loves you and who will walk with you through that darkest valley. It's not the end of the world. God's story never ends in the dark valley. God has something to say to you. God wants to lead you through and to redeem what seems unredeemable. Divorce touches almost every family nowadays. It touches my immediate family. I sat one day with a young man in a motel restaurant having breakfast. He had been divorced, I think, a year or two before, and he wanted to tell me his story. So he began. I had made up my mind that I would try to keep my mouth shut until he had said everything he wanted to say, and I did have some things which I was hoping I would have opportunity to say to him. But his story really boiled down to a very simple thing. He said, it wasn't working. It just wasn't working. And when I asked him what he meant, well, they just weren't the same people they were when they got married. She had gone this way and I've gone the other way and we've grown apart and we're incompatible. Well, you know, I almost laugh when I hear that word incompatibility because if you want to know the truth, I am absolutely convinced after having three husbands, and my husbands were all godly Christian men, I'm convinced that we're all incompatible in some ways. Some perhaps are more incompatible than others, but let's face it, because we are human and we're fallible and we sin and we fail and we make mistakes and we hurt each other, in the long run, it turns out that we are all incompatible. In fact, I remember hearing Jill Briscoe some years ago say to a public meeting, she said, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Did you know that Stuart and I are incompatible? And we live with an incompatible with two incompatible children and an incompatible dog and an incompatible cat. And she told how sometimes when her husband was away, she would take a phone call and some harried female voice would say, I've got to talk to your husband. Well, he's not here. Is there anything I could do to help you? Well, we're getting a divorce. And Jill said, sometimes I say to that woman, I bet I can guess why. I bet you're incompatible. Well, how did you know, she says. And Jill's answer to that was, you know, in the first place, Stuart doesn't do divorces. 
And in the second place, incompatibility is not a reason for divorce. It's a reason for marriage. We marry a sinner. And in my book to my daughter Valerie called Let Me Be a Woman, I wrote a chapter on that subject. You marry a sinner. So there really isn't anything new about this young man's story that I was hearing over the breakfast table. It wasn't working. We're incompatible. We're not the same as we were when we got married, etc., etc. Whoever gave them the idea that marriage was something that has to work just the way you wind up an alarm clock and it works all by itself. I mean, you have to work at it, don't you? It takes work on the part of both the husband and the wife. Well, I'm not going to get into my suggestions on how to make a marriage work, but let's just recognize the fact that nowadays, even among Christians, this awful thing called divorce has seemed to become an option. It smashes families and individual lives to pieces. Lars and I do a lot of traveling on planes, and we see children being put on planes by one parent at one end of the flight and taken off planes by the other parent at the other end of the flight, and we know that here is a broken home. It just makes us want to cry to see those little children flying from one end, one end of the country to the other to be with Mama for part of the time and Daddy for the other part. I heard a sailor who had been in a submarine say that in their submarine training, they were told very plainly that if the hatch was left open by the slightest fraction of an inch, everybody was going to drown. The submarine would sink. And this sailor likened the leaving open of the hatch to getting married with the idea in the back of your mind that if it doesn't work, you can always get a divorce. There's always that little escape hatch in the back of your mind. I had a card from a lady who has been divorced, and she put on the card this verse from Psalm 68, 6. She didn't tell me what translation it is, but these are the words, God makes a home for the lonely. And she said how she understood from that that he cares for the desolate, the outcast, the widow, the orphan, and the divorced. There are no rejects with God. You and I live in a crooked world. Divorce is a terrible thing. The Bible says God hates divorce, and surely people who are divorced must hate it at least as much as God does. God hates the reasons for it. He hates what it does to people. He hates the hurt. He hates the resentment. He hates the bitterness. May I read to you from Philippians, the third chapter? This is a letter written in prison by the Apostle Paul, a man who had been through a good many troubles and turmoils and sorrows in his day. He writes a whole letter filled with joy. It has been called the Joy Epistle. And I love that third chapter. He speaks about his own claims for fame, his pedigree, as it were. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was an Israelite by race of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born and bred in my attitude to the law, a Pharisee, a pious, in pious zeal, a persecutor of the church, in legal rectitude, faultless. But all such assets I have written off 
because of Christ, he says. I would say more. I count everything sheer loss because all is far outweighed by the gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I did in fact lose everything. Some of you have lost much. Not many of us can say that we've lost everything, but there have been times when I felt as if I had lost everything. Paul says he did in fact lose everything. But then he goes on to make this amazing statement. I count it so much garbage for the sake of gaining Christ and finding myself incorporate in him with no righteousness of my own, no legal rectitude, but the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ, given by God in response to faith. All I care for is to know Christ, to experience the power of his resurrection, and to share his sufferings in growing conformity with his death, if only I may finally arrive at the resurrection from the dead. Another translation says, How changed are my ambitions! All I care for is to know Christ. Have you ever thought of even a terrible situation like divorce as being a place in which you can learn to know Christ? I want to go back to that card that I received from the woman who had been recently divorced. She told how when she would go back to her apartment and open the door and realize that there wasn't anybody home, she felt full of self-pity, and she wanted to cry. But then the Lord had given her this encouraging verse, He makes a home for the lonely. And this is what she wrote. This can also be translated, God sets the lonely in families. Through the last year, I have come to know the reality of a much bigger family than my own natural family, dear as they are to me. My larger family are those who also know Christ in an intimate way. They are the ones who have listened to my cries and at the same time encouraged me to consider larger issues than myself. Gateway to Joy 28, Divorce, the Ultimate Humiliation. Hey, have you ever wondered why Elizabeth went by the name Elliot rather than Howard, Leach, or Gren? Well, Elizabeth took some time to talk about that on a program called The Man on the Ash Heap. And another question that has just come again is why do you not go by your married name? So I'm always glad to try to lay to rest the confusion about the fact that my name is really Mrs. Lars Gren, and I go by Elizabeth Gren, G-R-E-N. But in public, because I've been writing under the pen name of Elizabeth Elliot, Elliot was my first husband's name, my first husband is with the Lord, I have gone by that name in public, and of course on Gateway to Joy you know me as Elizabeth Elliot. But somehow or other I have to keep explaining this to people, and of course I'm glad to try to make things as clear as possible. It's clarity that I do aim for. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, it looks as though our time together is coming to an end. Let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, along with you as you had some exercise, maybe, wherever we found you today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources at elizabethelliot.org. 
Elizabeth with an S, elizabethelliot.org. And the next time you get a chance, why not leave a review for us wherever you find this podcast. Thanks. So again, visit elizabethelliot.org for more lectures and talks, devotionals, videos, and more. elizabethelliot.org. Until next time, may God remind you daily, you're loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms.